Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Serving Canada has always been the honor of my life, whether it is in a flight suit or in a business suit. There are thousands of passionate, patriotic and peaceful Canadians on the Hill right now who just want to be heard. This is a moment for responsible leaders to think carefully about where they stand and who they stand with. That is guilt by association. Why doesn't the Prime Minister opt instead for personal responsibility? Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and the final chapter of a choose-your-own-adventure book. Today, the so-called 2022 Freedom Convoy has forced Ottawa to call a state of emergency. Solidarity rallies popped up across the country this weekend. We'll get into how parties are or aren't engaging with this group. And Erin O'Toole bites the dust. A woman who's worn a Make America Great Again hat takes his place. And one Conservative MP is already calling himself Canada's next Prime Minister. Where does the Conservative Party go from here? Joining me this week, friends! Emily Nicola, columnist at the Montreal Gazette and Le Devoir, is back. Hey! Hi! Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief at The Hub, joins us from Ottawa. Hey! And Murad Hamadi, reporter at The Logic, is also back. Hi. It's going to be an episode with maximum chaos. Let's get into it. So just to recap, Canada's capital city has declared a state of emergency due to the Freedom Convoy that is now in its 11th day of occupation. The state of emergency will allow the city of Ottawa more flexibility to provide essential services and more easily purchase equipment required by frontline workers and first responders during this situation. Now, this past Sunday night, Ottawa police started to crack down on supplies used by the organizers. The police say they were seizing fuel. A Twitter thread showed two people trying to start a fire at a lobby in a downtown Ottawa building on Sunday night. Seven arrests were made on Sunday in Ottawa. Sixty criminal investigations relating to the protest have begun. Hundreds of tickets have been issued. Charges included excessive honking, red light violations, driving a vehicle on a sidewalk, and setting off fireworks. According to the Canadian press, 500 vehicles with the protests remain in Ottawa's downtown core as we're recording. Now, thanks to a 21-year-old public servant, an Ottawa judge has ordered a 10-day injunction against the use of air horns at the protests, giving the city some much-needed silence. Meanwhile, protests appeared across the country, from Halifax to Toronto to Vancouver this past weekend. Whether the organizers were the same as the one in Ottawa is unclear. What we can be sure of, though, is that they are all calling for the same thing. The end of vaccine mandates, Justin Trudeau's head, and the dissolution of government. We're sick and tired of this! We have been sick and tired of this since day one! So, to everybody out here, this is amazing that you're coming out. Even though we've been slandered by the mainstream media... We have to keep on 
fighting. To the truckers out there, thank you so much for trying to keep Canada glorious and free, because that's why we're all here. Emotions are running high, and politicians have failed in every way to de-escalate the situation. And yet, at every step of the way, politicians and citizens alike continue to call on the federal government to engage with the convoy. Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson is asking the government to appoint a mediator. On Monday morning, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh called for an emergency debate and described the situation as a crisis and an attempt to overthrow the government by a foreign-funded movement. Now, we here at the Backbench can't get into every aspect of this multifaceted and evolving situation, but let's start here. Murad, why does Ottawa seem to be so paralyzed by all of this? (laughs) Where to even begin? Sorry. Um, (laughs) So I think it might be useful to understand that Ottawa at the best of times is not the like most coherently run city in part because... You know, there's the municipal government, then there's this wonderful creation called the NCC, the National Capital Commission, and then there's the federal government. And like Ottawa is a city in and of itself, but it's also a government town, right? Or a company town where the company is the federal government. And so, you know, the moment that these people landed up on Parliament's doorstep, it became a little bit more complicated than simply a civic issue because the symbolism of the event and any action against it is sort of national, even if the nuisance factor, the actual like on the ground problems are the municipalities mainly to deal with. So it's a bit of a jurisdictional mess. That is sort of the theme of the pandemic, right? Whose whose job is it to deal with any of these things? I mean, who are you even negotiating with at this point? Like the disparate interests within this group are so widely spread. There's no compromise position you can reach with a group that wants to see um, sort of an undemocratic ousting of a government. I don't think Canadians, not just people in Ottawa, have learned all the lessons that needs to be learned from January 6th, capital insurrection. I think maybe is a good place to start. The fact that we didn't see this coming and I'm excluding myself in that week, I think speaks to a level of illiteracy in our political class when it comes to the far right and alt-right movements that have done this before. We all remember the United We Will convoy and like the yellow vests. And these are in great part the same people doing exactly the same thing, which is organize people moving from west to east peddling, um, you know, conspiracy theories. That happened, by the way, in 2019, before COVID, right? So it's not something that's COVID-specific. And back then, the conservatives were like, yeah, we're going to cuddle with this group because their official motive is the oil industry, which we like. And so that's when you had somebody like Andrew Scheer doing a speech on Parliament Hill in Ottawa next to Faith Goldie, which is a notorious white supremacist because of like the way that this convoy back then was organized. And we're going through exactly the same thing like almost three years later now. While actually Canadians have been, you know, punching above their weight and, and playing a great role in American movements for years, and we've been documenting that as well, Canadians have been down in the U.S. influencing U.S. politics on the far right. Every time that like white supremacist movement happened in Canada, we, we pretend that they're like, no, this is not who we are. This is not Canada. How come they're here? 
And so politically, it makes it impossible to respond to that without having a real conversation in this country about what are the political movements that are at force and how they've been organized and how, while people have been looking for, you know, potential terrorist threats and whatever, everywhere else but in the far right, like those movements have been growing. Well, let's let's talk about some of the lessons learned, right? You'd mentioned Andrew Scheer and the conservative movement. So let's start there. You know, several conservative leaders in the past 10 days, including outgoing leader Aaron O'Toole, interim leader Candace Bergen, and finance critic Pierre Polyev, have expressed their sympathies for the convoy. Candace Bergen even wrote to Aaron O'Toole asking him not to instruct the convoy to go home. She wrote, quote, we need to turn this into the PM or prime minister's problem. She also asked Aaron O'Toole to give them his support, arguing there are, quote, good people on both sides. That's a phrase that was made infamous by former U.S. President Donald Trump after a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. And Fun fact, Donald Trump endorsed the Ottawa convoy. So, Stuart, why is the Conservative Party's members pandering to this group? I'll give you the most charitable explanation of why they might be doing this. And first off, I'll say I wouldn't I wouldn't go near it if I were a politician or if I were just me. I am allergic to mobs. And I think that <laughs> mobs kind of go against everything we've worked for in the post-Enlightenment Western society, which is to... Um, govern ourselves without um, the strongest person winning and um, having the rule of law. So I, I just wish they would go home. And that's probably where I stand personally on this. But if you're a conservative politician, um, you're in opposition. And my personal belief on vaccine mandates, which we touched on very briefly on this show, but I just I didn't feel good about them. I felt like maybe they would have more ill effects than positive benefits. And I have always felt that way. And now I think I'm really starting to feel that way. I'm perfectly willing to listen to people saying the positive benefits of getting more people vaccinated are worth that. And maybe that's true. But personally, I don't feel that way. So I'm opposed to mandates. I actually have found myself in agreement with what some of the people in this protest are saying, despite the fact that I wouldn't go near it and I hate it and I wish they would leave. So if you are a conservative politician, you know that there are people like me out there. So you now have a decision to make as a conservative politician, which is, do I use this big news event to talk to those people who are not on the fringes, but maybe share some of the beliefs that the convoy protesters are articulating? Or do I say, you know what, the risks are too high. These guys are fringe elements, and I should just stay away from them. I would want to do the latter. But a lot of these politicians are not in writings where they worry about the ill effects of talking to these guys. Yeah, see, if if we were having a constructive conversation about COVID-19 policies, and, and if that was the goal of this group of people, I think that would be great. But we're not having that conversation. Instead, you know, this group is waving fuck Justin Trudeau flags and Charter of Rights and Freedoms photocopied, you know, on on large pieces of paper saying we're fighting for freedom. Our producer Tiffany went to the one at Queen's Park this past weekend. I am sure I'm not the only one here who faced that decision, choosing your rights over a job, over an opportunity. If I stayed home for a year, who's liable for those damages to me? Nobody. 
So why should we comply with this nonsense when no one's held responsible, liable, and we suffer the consequences of it? I can't get a job right now. There's so many places that now specify as a requirement of employment that you need to be vaccinated. That's another way of being denied access to society based on a, a choice that, as far as I'm concerned, is based on bodily autonomy. Opposition leaders have also been as absent as, I would say, government leaders in partaking in this conversation. We heard from Jagmeet Singh this morning, as I mentioned at the top. He's calling for an emergency debate, and he characterized the convoy as a foreign-funded attempt to overthrow the government. But as the historically workers' party, why has the NDP failed to speak to the economic challenges that also underpins this, this movement? I think that's a great question, and I think it's a question that should be asked of the NDP, but also definitely we're talking about jobs, so definitely unions. Uh, the question is, where is everybody else channeling the energy and the anger and the frustrations that people have in a direction that's actually healthy? Because uh, I do agree with Stuart that there's a lot of questions to be asked and there's a lot of criticism to be done about certain COVID-19 policies and we can have a debate and we can certainly, I think, to me, have a conversation about why is it that you know, the fact that vaccine mandates are even on the table is there because our healthcare systems have been collapsing over the country, right? And so, like, taking a conversation back to that and not pretending that we have to do this because we're pandemic and rather admitting that we have to do this because we've been underfunding public healthcare might be also a great way to reframe the conversation. But that reframing is not necessarily something that I'm hearing coming from mainstream sources that much. You know, if people want to criticize, for example, big pharma, all of those conversations we can have, but because we're not having them, people are stuck in this binary where you're either pro-pharma or against science. And I think when you close the conversation off like that, you're actually leaving all the ground for criticism to a movement that is anti-science, that is not based on facts, and that is based on feeding people's worst instincts. Murad, jump in here. You watch economic impacts a lot. And there is a big economic undercurrent in this movement. Why do you think uh, Ottawa is failing to address that? I mean, is Ottawa failing to address the economic impact? Like, there's definitely been dislocation, don't get me wrong, over the course of the pandemic. There's lots of people who need new jobs uh, or good jobs who who are working, you know, as far as the stats go, but are not managing to maintain a standard of living that they did before, no matter, you know, leaving aside uh, for the moment, even the people who didn't have a decent standard of living to begin with, the whole problem that we were supposed to be solving before the pandemic hit and, and, and haven't yet. Ottawa has propped up businesses across the country. It's helped keep people employed. Has it been perfect? By no means. But how do you manage uncertainty this is not not sort of an uh, apologia for Ottawa. I'm not trying to make excuses for the way the government has dealt with this, but like there is some middle ground to be had here in terms of assessing the response. They have done quite a lot that has kept people in work, and they have let some people fall through the cracks undoubtedly. The thing that I find sort of like hard to grapple with is watching on the first weekend, the Saturday and Sunday when the uh, the convoy first rolled into Ottawa, you know, I was watching on Twitter, staying home to try and uh, keep out of it because I wasn't covering it. And some of the people that I saw tweeting like from inside the 
the like masses on the hill. And I promise I'm not bringing this up just because I'm still bitter, but the kid that beat me in the student council election in high school was at that <laughs> protest. Now, I need to make clear, we went to high school halfway around the world in India. He was there on the side of the convoy. Um, and it turns out he's, I then did some digging, it turns out he's a little bit of a, a crypto bro and a sort of intellectual dark web wannabe. And none of that is particularly surprising to me uh, from our time in high school, but I don't bring this up just to shame him. But it was interesting to me because, you know, he's an immigrant uh, like me. He's first gen. Um, you know, he has very different values than I have. Uh, and always has, um, but he was latching on to the sort of abstract idea of freedom in that movement. There was an entrepreneur I saw who runs a tech company that I've written about in the past who went to an Ivy League school who uh, was there because he's against mandates. I think the, the pandemic has sort of broken those those social and parasocial relationships in a way that I think we're still grappling with, and and I know you asked a question about economics, and I think the the way that this comes back to that is like the vision for what our world looks like today is just distinct for different people in a way that like, God, I'm going to take this back to theory, uh, but there's this idea of imagined communities that underlies a lot of social science, right? There are boundaries that you set around a set of people who you share something in common with, and you take collective action together on the basis of that similarity. You know, some of that is geography, some of that is political system, some of that is religion, whatever, whatever your set of boundaries are. We've been talking so long about filter bubbles and all this stuff, but it feels like the pandemic has atomized those communities even further, like mm -hmm. along lines that are that would not typically come up day to day, like racism or misogyny, anti-blackness, uh, discrimination against indigenous people. Those fault lines have already existed, but now we've added ones around like belief in science. And those always existed, but they were kind of under the surface. And I just, I'm having a hard time grappling with how that person that I went to high school with and I can ever have a conversation like at a reunion where we have anything to talk about anymore because I now work for the institution that he thinks is ruining the world. Well, I would add belief in government to that list of, you know, things that are splitting society. The first question you asked was, um, why did this paralyze Ottawa? And I, it's, there's a really boring explanation, which is that the cops thought they were going to come in, protest, and then leave. And they didn't. And it kind of made sense that the cops thought that because that's usually what people do. They come for a day or two, they cause some chaos, and then they go. And it reminded me of like in football when some new tactic comes along. Like I remember the Wildcat offense was big for a year. And the first time it was used, the very crappy Miami Dolphins blew out the very good New England Patriots. And it was because they had an innovation that nobody knew how to respond to. And it worked really, really, really well once. And then after that, you know, it didn't. And so if you look at how the Toronto cops responded and how other cities responded this weekend, they were prepared for that and they weren't going to let it happen. So like as much as I like I'm sort of temperamentally, I want to believe that we're all fucked and that this is the end of Canada as we know it. Like <laughs> to me, that's an exciting thing to cover as a reporter is like the our sort of like civic apocalypse. No, it just was a screw up by the cops. And now we're sort of living through it. And it's hard to get these massive trucks out of there without causing a bloodbath. Um, Emily, I think you want to disagree with me. So I would, I would love to <laughs> hear that. 
Well, I'm not disagreeing with you that the cops didn't see it coming, but I think it's sheer incompetence that they didn't see it coming because it was written all over their walls. It was written all over their website that this is what they wanted to do. They just failed to take seriously what people announced that they said they wanted to do. They had a memorandum of understanding that basically laid it out. And it's just it's just so infuriating as somebody who's watched like underground cops trying to infiltrate basically every single Black Lives Matter cell in this country trying to look for like potential like extremist elements there and then being like oh we didn't know they wanted to occupy Ottawa when they literally wrote it down and then cops being like yeah we didn't know you didn't know because you didn't want to know or did you really did not know or is it that like you believe that like your like white cousins are so nice that they couldn't possibly do anything wrong like what is what is the logic that led you to not see that people who are announcing that this is what they wanted to do are going to do what they said that they wanted to do it's my frustration and i think it's been the frustration of a lot of people who've been part of peaceful movements that have been like invasively spied on by police intelligence that didn't find anything. And then now they're surprised at that. That's, I guess it goes back to my earlier points about incapacity to take those movements seriously. And which raises the points of how much like cops are actually like sympathetic to this moment. They actually agree with the convoy. What frightens me about this movement is who makes it up, right? Because as, as Christopher Curtis wrote on the Rover, what we're seeing in Ottawa right now is, you know, everyone from Green Party supporters to left-wing, right-wing folks to Chris's words, vegans who volunteer with the homeless, they're all agreeing. And as we've mentioned throughout this conversation, you know, for years people have been warning of creeping extremism, misinformation, factions, as Murad mentioned, imagined communities, and a sense of growing alienation across Canada. And it's uniting people across the spectrum. So is this a new political coalition? I think there's two aspects of this. One is that this kind of a protest and the kind of energy we're seeing in rural Ontario and uh, rural Alberta and other places across the country, these are people who haven't really participated in politics before. So that's just new. There are people on the left, mostly people on the right, but there are, like, as you said, you know, the, the vegans, just people who don't have a political affiliation. And this may die out and then they just go back to their lives. Um, because I think a lot of this is pandemic fueled. And probably the question I'm most curious about is where are we going to be in six months? Where are we going to be in a year? Uh, how is this going to affect provincial politics in Alberta and Ontario? So that's an open question. I don't have any strong thoughts or feelings on where that goes. The other side of it is that there is something of a realignment happening with the political thought in Canada. And it's happened, you know, in a lot of Western countries, the UK and the US, where the issues that I prioritize don't match up with a party anymore. And I have like 10 issues I care about, three I really care about. There's no party that hits them all. And I'm kind of a free agent. I think a lot of my friends are free agents. And the pandemic has scrambled a lot of this. So that is an issue that doesn't take systemic change to remedy. It just means the parties have to figure this out. And it'll probably take five years to get that realignment you know, this is like something that happens every election and they figure out their platforms and they make mistakes and they don't quite get it. The other side of it is sort of the electoral reform aspect of it, which is, you know, maybe that's something that would work. But I think right now we're just in a weird spot where the parties are 
spinning the wheel of where they line up with the Canadian population. And then, you know, things will shake out from there. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Emily? I am confused, and I know we've just like spoke about the convoy forever, but I just want to say and just maybe ask our audience if they remember a time when there have been more Canadian flags in Quebec City <laughs> than last weekend. Um, and if they can understand why is bringing a record number of Canadian flags to Quebec City the best way to show that they're not happy with Justin Trudeau. Um, I'm just I'm just so confused as a Quebecer in terms of like what's going on with the Canadian flags and yes there are some Quebec flags as well but like why why are they everywhere and why is that just a normal thing that nobody's questioning and what does it all mean um, and I feel like maybe it means uh, something that's really important to this country that we're that we're ignoring but I feel like in the interest of Canadian sovereignty. And unity, it's important to bring, like, that point of order. <laughs> Listen, that's not a point of order, but maybe they're <laughs> celebrating the Olympics. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Murad? I'd like to read into the record uh, something uh, uh, important. Uh, and it and it goes as such, quote, Boris will feel more sorrow than Mary did watching Christ on the cross. It's that level of void left in his life. End quote. Um, this is a quote in a political story about um, an aide to the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson named Munira Mirza quitting her job uh, over something that honestly will take too long to explain. Uh, but the reason that I bring it up is twofold. One, um, I'm not sure that description of Mary watching Christ on the cross from my years in a school run by uh, Christian missionaries is quite accurate in terms of emotion, um, given the sort of significance of that moment. But uh, leaving that aside, uh, and having now scandalized every teacher uh, who ever taught me, um, that that quote uh, was given by someone who's identified as a number 10 official. So someone who works in the prime minister's uh, office in the UK. And uh, it's given on background. At the, the source of the quote is not identified. And I just wanted to say, uh, as I've said, been saying out loud for sort of a week, it, it's sort of devastating to me that that is the level of quote you can get if you grant someone on background in the UK versus here in Canada, where what you will probably get is some version of a party line, whether that's the government's or or some other institutions, just the person involved doesn't want to get into trouble for like telling you, even though, frankly, they've probably been authorized to tell you. Uh, and I think that uh, says something about the difference between sort of the like um, the political media uh, interaction in the UK and in Canada that I find quite sad. So what I'm saying is if you work for a minister and you want to uh, like 
talk to me and say shit like that, my email address is in my Twitter bio. Not a point of order, <laughs> but please, God, someone send Murad better quotes so I can stop hearing about it. <laughs> point of order, Madam Speaker? What is your point of order, Stuart? My point of order is about uh, T.S. Eliot and James Joyce. Um, it is the year 2022. And if you were alive 100 years ago, and you were into like really obscure literary magazines that had like 500 subscribers, you could have read that when it was published. I think that's pretty cool. And I think that if you have been putting off reading either of these things, or you like read The Wasteland in high school, um, I would highly recommend taking this opportunity to get back into it. It's really a beautiful thing to listen to. And if you're reading Ulysses, the one thing I'd recommend is if you've taken a stab at it and you failed, like I did the first like six times I tried to read it, get like a companion thing. Um, the one I would recommend is Vladimir Nabokov, the Russian writer. He actually did lectures on Ulysses and you can buy them. It's great. He has little maps and he explains everything and he's hilarious. <laughs> I promise you in the end, it's worth it. There will be at least one chapter that sits in your brain until you die and you'll be able to think about it and it'll like fill you with joy for the rest of your life. Uh, this is not a point of order, but I love how nerdy it is. And I very quickly want to know why it's relevant to people who care about Canadian politics. Um, because if they love beautiful things and they need a break from Canadian politics, it's the perfect thing. <laughs> I still can't believe it, but it actually happened. In the midst of maximum chaos, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole was ousted by his caucus. O'Toole has left the post, and now Manitoba MP Candace Bergen is the new interim leader. The Conservative Party will call a leadership race in the near future, and the shadow minister of finance, Pierre Polyev, is making serious moves on his YouTube channel. Here's the problem. Trudeau thinks he's your boss. He's got it backwards. You are the boss. That's why I'm running for prime minister. 16 of his colleagues, plus one big blue name, high former Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird, expressed their support for this new bid. Now, how did we get here? Listeners might recall that back in November, we had a little conversation about the Reform Act. Under Ontario Tory MP Michael Chong's 2013 Reform Act, any party that votes to adopt this act must review its leadership if a written notice is signed and submitted by at least 20% of the caucus members. The Conservatives are the only federal party to adopt this act for the 44th Parliament. Last week, a letter calling for an early leadership review was presented to the chair with 30% of the caucus, that's 35 votes. Things escalated quickly from there. Wednesday, Conservative Caucus Chair Scott Reid announced that out of the 118 voting members of the Conservative Caucus, 73 were in favor of replacing Aaron O'Toole as leader of the Conservative Party. Only 45 wanted him to stay. And even though he's no longer leader, Aaron O'Toole will stay as a sitting MP from the GTA. Now, Stuart, what are your takeaways from this entire chaotic saga? Like I am somewhat sympathetic to arguments that there are there there is a real division in the party that is going to be hard to bridge. You know, if you talk to MPs, they still will sometimes reference the like PC reform divide in the party. Very quickly, Stuart, can you explain the PC reform divide? Yeah, so there is a very interesting sort of populist 
um, Alberta history, um, which I think probably manifested like most distinctly in the Reform Party, which is like direct democracy, listen to voters, referendums are good, um, you know, like common sense of the common man kind of thing. That turned into the Canadian Alliance. The Canadian Alliance merged with the progressive conservatives, the sort of like Brian Mulroney, like uh, Laurentian elite conservative party that had, you know, governed in the late 80s. Um, so you've got sort of a mainstream version of the conservatives that tends to be more liberal on social issues and then sort of a wild, you know, Alberta populist side. And they've never really gotten along, but they will get along if it gets them in power. So that is still like a live issue. And then the other problem that they have is when you lose, you have fewer seats, but also the seats you do have are the ones where like your hardest core supporters are. So you have a certain type of like reform style conservative sort of dominating the party. It is hard to have a real discussion about where a party should go and what went wrong because there's so much motivated reasoning in these debates. You know, I was interested to see some of the commentary around, um, you know, just before Aaron O'Toole was ousted. And, and one particular statement by a Calgary MP, Bob Benson, stood out. He said that he supported replacing Aaron O'Toole because of his, quote, flip-flops and questionable judgment, end quote. He listed four points that he thought Aaron O'Toole had failed on. These included a failure to clearly stand up for the charter rights of Canadians during the pandemic. I'm assuming he went he meant the vaccine mandate. He mentioned that Aaron O'Toole had failed to stand up against Bill 96 in Quebec to protect the rights of English-speaking minorities in Quebec. Bob Benson mentioned that Aaron O'Toole also supported the carbon tax policy, despite the fact that members of the caucus opposed it, and that Aaron O'Toole also pressured members of parliament to support the 2021 platform on the penalty of expulsion from the party or removal as a candidate. Murad, what did you make of Bob Benson's list of grievances? Do you think they had merit and were they the doom of Aaron O'Toole? Well, working back quickly, I mean, requiring that your candidates and your MP support the platform is pretty 101 for uh, for sort of running an election. That one a nah, little less hot on the carbon tax issue, which like, honestly, you should be doing the segment. But um, it's certainly true that, you know, the, the carbon savings account uh, or the, the the climate savings account that the conservatives sort of rolled out and could never fully quite explain how it was going to work in practice. Like for anyone who is inclined to see the carbon tax as a as a sort of uh, the wrong way to go, that was never going to go over well. It felt like they, he was going halfway, you know, that ultimately is the big criticism, right? To like wrap them all in one is like, a lot of Aaron O'Toole's positions to people who had strong conservative positions on those issues felt like they sort of plotted where the liberals were, plotted where the conservatives historically are, found the middle point, wrote the policy there. And that uh, is not a way to sort of appease your base. And it's not necessarily a way to get, you know, the average voter to uh, trust you. But I think... It is clear, like, over the last little while, and you, you've you seen all the reporting that was trickling out. And, and just to, to look at this briefly from a media perspective, like, you have a good sense that a, can, a leader is in trouble when the leaks really start to come out. Because that means there are motivated people within the party who are willing to have the party look bad or like it's in disarray if it gets rid of 
the person at the top, right? That's how Sheer ultimately was ousted was like the threat of this leak about his, uh, about the party paying for his kid's schooling or contributing to his kid's schooling in some way. So it, it seems clear that there was caucus unrest that was to some degree personal. There is also a direct link between the events of these past 10 days, i.e. the convoy and Aaron O'Toole getting sacked. Emily, I'm wondering to what extent did that contribute to Aaron O'Toole's, you know, departure as leader? I think it played the, a big role in terms of that was the last straw. I also think that everything else that people have been saying in terms of, yeah, he was also hostile because of people who were not necessarily unhappy with his more progressive stance. And I'm using the word progressive in huge quotation marks during the, during the election campaign. They were not necessarily unhappy with that, but they were just unhappy with his leadership style. I do agree with that. But I would push back against the narrative that the Alliance PC union was a happy one under Stephen Harper. And I think it's something that people have been saying a lot. Can you break that down? Yes. Uh, So as somebody who is in Quebec, there was a lot of the Brian Mulroney era conservatives in Quebec that just quietly left the conservatives when they merged. They didn't make a fuss about it. They just transferred their focus on provincial politics because Jean Charest, who is veteran of uh, Brian Mulroney government, was the premier. So they just focused their intention on provincial politics. And I've been seeing the same from rhetories in Ontario. Some of them like became the mayor of Toronto. Some of them, you know, they just focused their energy uh, elsewhere. Uh, and, and I think you saw a really great indication of that just the last time around when Irene O'Toole won the leadership. Jean Charest had actually considered as well running for leadership again. And then he realized that and he said, and a lot of people around him said, this is not a conservative party where a, a, a former, the, the PC crowd is, is having the numbers where they can win anymore. The, the, the crowd that was there has already left. And so what we're seeing now is something that's been going on for years. And it was already going on under Stephen Harper, but more quietly. Well, it was interesting that in Aaron O'Toole's departure speech that he put out on all his social media platforms, he took shots at his own party. This country needs a conservative party that is both an intellectual force and a governing force. Ideology without power is vanity. Seeking power without ideology is hubris. I thought that was really interesting because he... It seemed to be like accusing the party for not having its shit together, basically, and not figuring out what direction it wants to go to on various different policy issues. And now we have a new leader. Her name is Candace Bergen, or a new interim leader, rather. Her name is Candace Bergen. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I was quite taken aback that Candace Bergen had, you know, there's a photo of Candace Bergen wearing a Make America Great Again hat, which is quite literally a symbol of American Trumpism perhaps arriving in Ottawa? Like, is this new interim uh, leader plus, you know, the new appointees that she's made, is this a choice by the Conservative Party to embrace the most right-wing aspects? I'll try to as quick as I can just to give you some insight into this. But, like, there is a very vocal part of that caucus and a very dedicated part of that caucus that just won a huge victory. And they are spiking the football a little bit, I think. Um, but also that's who is... You know, like that was a vote in caucus. The same people who were behind um, turfing Aaron O'Toole would have won the vote for who they want as uh, interim leader, too. So 
you know, just to answer your question, like literally, um, the the faction that was making decisions in the conservative party is the most conservative part of the conservative party. Um, so I, I think probably there was some political um, smarts in getting a woman in the job, but I will be interested to see where they go on things like the carbon tax, which was, you know, something that was a key to ousting Aaron O'Toole. Um, that'll tell us a lot about your question. I would just quickly note, like, Candace Bergen has been part of the leadership group of the conservative, the House leadership for several years now. Um, it is also possible to see her just as the sort of like steady hand on the rudder choice. She has dealt with everyone in caucuses, either House leader or deputy leader over time. Like I, the MAGA photo definitely exists. She's tried to explain it. Um, I, I, I would be careful about not reading into that one moment but add that to her meeting with the convoy and sure but lots of lots of like lots of conservative MPs have met with the convoy and this for reasons that Stuart has explained the stuff the the stuff that's leaking out about what she said she said in caucus during the last week I think is interesting because uh, for the same reason that I was alluding to earlier she had literally been in the job for less than 24 hours when the leak started and that I think tells you that there are certainly people in that caucus who again don't mind the party being painted a certain way as long as they get their points in so I wouldn't say this to dismiss it entirely, you know, her leadership team that she appointed while sweeping out the Aaron O'Toole leadership team is more, I think, generally speaking, rural, more from the conservative wing of the party. To Stuart's point, that is who is in control of caucus, but Candace Bergen also just represents continuity to some degree. I was surprised when Aaron O'Toole was, was removed that quickly because... Um, you know, I'd been speaking to people who were disenfranchised who were sort of watching Aaron O'Toole very closely. Um, and one of those people was Derek, who's the, you know, the PPC vote, like former PPC voter and participant who I spoke to here on the backbench. And after we had the conversation, Aaron O'Toole actually reached out to him personally and, and spoke to Derek and, you know, had a conversation about, you know, what's wrong with the Conservative Party? Why did you leave? What can what can I do to, you know, make it better? What would you like to see? Like, tried to have a constructive conversation about how he could bring someone like Derek back into the fold. And I wonder now, without Aaron O'Toole, what is the next evolution of the Conservative Party so that people like Derek will still be engaged? Emily, do you think that the party will be able to, as it is right now, will be able to figure out where it lies on issues beyond deficits and debt. Well, it's interesting you bring up a, a person that was voting for the PPC because if we go with the theory that the conservative is shifting a little bit more to the right and there is going to be more of a like populist Trumpist element, that, that element is going to be stronger uh, from now on. The issue is not necessarily with voters, with conservatives appealing with voters who have looked at the at Max and Bernier's party. I think the issue is for them to be speaking to voters who have been voting for the liberals but pinching their nose because they think Trudeau is too much to the left and getting those voters to consider the conservatives as an option. Because what you've been seeing is that in the praise, the conservatives win by Stalinian margins, uh, is I think is the word that I would use. And even if the, the Maxim Bernier's party is uh, going up in the polls, it's going to take uh, for them to have a huge push for those seats to actually, 
you know, be taken over by a form of a purple wave because the conservative margins are too high. So basically, it seems like people like Marilyn Gledou, people like Pierre Poly have been looking at, you know, in their own writings, but also just in the prairies in general, they've been looking at who is tempted by people who are more to the right of them in writings that are incredibly safe. If the conservatives want to have more writings in Ontario, they want to have more writing in Quebec. If that's the way that they want to go ahead to be able to form government, I don't know how they're going to do that by being so concerned with people who are leaning towards Maxime Bernier, basically. On that note, we'll adjourn. Thank you for making sense of Maximum Chaos with me. Where can people find you and follow along your amazing analysis and work? Stuart, where are you? Uh, you can find me at thehub.ca. And actually, I've been tweeting like like maybe two or three times a week now. I've so seen it. <laughs> uh, check me out, Stuart X Thompson on Twitter. There's some good football tweets coming your way if you do that. <laughs> Emily, where can people find you? Yeah, I've been doom scrolling there for tweeting more than usual as well. So uh, you can you can find me on Twitter and you can find me in the Montreal Gazette and in Le Devoir. And Murad, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at thelogic.co and on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M, where I basically just make stupid jokes now. If you are worried about what's happening in Ottawa, scared, confused, or just following along and want to know more, Send us an email. We want to hear what you'd like us to discuss and break down and explain better. Our email is backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work on the Narwhal. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lam with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our associate producer is Noor Azrie. Our managing editor is Kieran Outshorn. The music is by Nathan Burley. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.